Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Hello. Hi, it's another day. Another morning. It is a morning still. <laughs> How do people know it's a morning though? Other than what that we tell them it's a morning. It could be any time of day. That's true. I mean, you have it's, brightness in your windows, so. It's morning for us. It's morning for us. Mm-hmm. So I, I, before we get even started in today, because I have a, I think we have a really good podcast. I have lots of fun stuff to talk about. We had a very short topic. We're going to talk a little bit about ABO compatibility. Mm-hmm. But I found a bunch of other stuff that I found really kind of interesting. So hopefully I will keep you interested. I figure if you're interested, then our listeners will be interested. <laughs> okay. But you wanted to mention something about uh, temporal relationships and timeliness of our podcasts. Oh. Because they're sort of out of order. Oh, yeah. So, I, I, yeah. I was talking about so just it. Tell people, just, but just tell people why what's going on. So we, um, when we had that technical difficulties and we couldn't get our old podcast reloaded before we relaunched the Birthing Instincts podcast, um, we recorded a bunch. So we've got some in the can, so to speak. Right. And uh, Stu wanted to just start to release them a couple times a week, but um, I requested that we continue to do it on a weekly basis so that when I get in my RV, Miss Hope, and um, drive away off into the sunset, um, that I have a few weeks where I don't have to record. Right. So, or even when we'll record and then there may be two weeks where you're out of touch and we'll have some in the can. So that's why yeah. we're doing it. And then they're a little bit out of order too, because some of them were so important with timeliness that we stuck them in front of other ones. Yes. When you went to the... Um, so sometimes yeah. we'll refer to something we said in the last podcast, but it was actually like... Weeks three, ago. Three weeks ago. So <laughs> I just want to be very clear about that. Once um, Bliss gets settled and everything they get, and, and we run out of canned podcasts, then, mm-hmm. then we'll, everything It'll will be It'll be more in order. timely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say that. You know, then on the way over to your house today, um, I try. I was listening to the one that's currently out. Yeah. And I wanted, you know, it's interesting when you listen to yourself speak. Yeah. First of all, you are excellent. And the best part of it is when you laugh. <laughs> I just love it. But I hear myself th- say things like, right, or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or okay, as a way of pausing between thoughts because my brain doesn't work as fast as it needs to. Yeah. Especially, well, this week I actually hit my head on the trail. We'll talk about that in a second, but I say, okay, a lot. And this weekend I was watching Braveheart back on TV. Such a good movie. I was watching it on TV and there's a scene where he's talking to his friend Hamish about something and and Hamish goes, okay. And he goes, okay. And he goes, okay. Back and forth, they say, okay, like three or four times. So then I thought for a second, wait a minute, this is this is about 1300, um, the year 1300 mm-hmm. when William Wallace was around. So so I look up the origin of the word okay, and it was like in the 18th century. Yeah. Or the, <laughs> yeah. 19th, oh, the 19th thing. century. That's cool. So it was interesting because, you know, and again, that, that movie is historically not accurate in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. It's just a great movie. It's fantastic. Right. You haven't seen it because it's probably, what, 25 years old? Maybe more. Well, Mel Gibson looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> and so does Sophie Marceau yes. and uh, and the woman that plays Murray too. I yeah. mean, wow. So anyway, but nonetheless, I, uh, it's a term that, it's just how my brain works. I was just thinking about it. And then they were saying it on the movie and I said, wait a minute, this is 1300. They, <laughs> did they have the word okay in 1300? I love that you. And did they have the F word in 1300? Because it's used all the time. Yeah, that's probably to make it more relatable or something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they did. Mm-hmm. I didn't look up the origin of the F word. <laughs> that's <laughs> for the next podcast. Yeah. So if any of our listeners want to look it up and send it, send it to us, <laughs> we can look it up. Um, but I do love your laugh. So Thank that's really you. good. And, you know, it's funny. I agree. Like when I listen back to myself, especially when I watch myself, because I do a lot of hand gestures. Oh, me too. I do this. <laughs> my daughter, Sky used to make fun of me all the time uh, about that. She would mimic me. And I was like, I don't do that. And then I watched myself and I totally do. Um, but I also critique how I sound. There's certain things that I do, certain pauses. So I think that's just human nature. Yeah. I do have some corrections and additions to some of the recent podcasts. like. 
Our last podcast, we talked about aspirin and pregnancy last time, and we came up with some conclusions about that. It seems to be something that might lower the risks of recurrent preeclampsia, but then it has no real use in pretty much everything else, right? And it doesn't need to be given to every single pregnant woman. Yes, that's well, that's the same thing as saying yes. it has no utility in many other things. <laughs> yes. There's, a, there's an, an article that just came out um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine in January on aspirin that I that popped up on my feed. And it says the effect of preconception initiated low dose aspirin on human corneotic gonadotropin. Well, that's it's a long title, but it's the effect <laughs> on miscarriages. Okay. And we said that unless somebody had a history of preeclampsia, that, that there's no use to using it in miscarriages. That was one statement from the, the guidelines that we read from ACOG mm-hmm. and maybe even from the New England Journal article as well. Anyway, in this, in this study, which was the Annals of Internal Medicine, the conclusion was her protocol results suggest that preconception use of low-dose aspirin at least four days per week may improve reproductive outcomes for women who have had one or two pregnancy losses. Increasing adherence to the low-dose aspirin seems to keep seems to be key to improving effectiveness. So here's something that's saying the opposite. And they're not saying it needs to be related to somebody who's on a history of preeclampsia either. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that there's, there's data out there all the time. And I wrote a little note to myself that knowledge and science is never certain. Mm-hmm. As some of our people in the media like to say, the science is settled or the science is certain. It's always in a state of flux. Right. So when, again, when everybody, anybody ever says that it, the science is settled, you know, they're lying. That's, <laughs> that's one of my, my key things. Also, another study out of Sweden on aspirin says here that there is a higher incidence of intrapartum bleeding, postpartum hemorrhage, and postpartum hematoma, and neonatal intracranial hemorrhage was also increased in women who were taking aspirin. That's what I was feeling instinctively. But they said a higher incidence of bleeding among aspirin users was present for those who had a vaginal birth, but not for those who had a cesarean birth. So in my practice, mm-hmm that would be appropriate to a knowledge to understand is that we're going to be doing vaginal. And it goes slightly against what we were talking about in the aspirin podcast. And they conclude that using aspirin during pregnancy is associated with increased postpartum bleeding and postpartum hematoma. It may also be associated with neonatal intracranial hemorrhage. When offering aspirin during pregnancy, these risks need to be weighed against the potential benefits. Now we know there are benefits. Okay. And we know there are risks. The risks are small, all right, but they're not uh, insignificant. Some of them have reached statistical significance of the things we just talked about. So again, just something to consider. Nothing is always, nothing is never, right? Correct. You all right with that? I'm okay with that. Yes. All right. I was going to try. I try to, you know, we want to be accurate on the Dr. Seuss podcast, right? We do, yeah, we, we do the best we can. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't make stuff up. <laughs> now only our opinions about right and we, and we have no up. and we have no financial interest in these things no we don't we're not getting millions of dollars from uh, pharmaceutical companies no right as a matter of fact i i spend money on pharmaceuticals we're not getting millions of dollars free, from anything. i don't even get free pharmaceuticals <laughs> all right we also talked one time about in a previous podcast a little while back about Epidural anesthesia possibly being associated with autism. Yeah, remember that? I do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So another abstract, which I found in a Canadian study, showed that, I won't go through the whole thing, but it just shows in a Canadian population-based birth cohort study, no association between epidural labor anesthesia exposure and an increased offspring risk of autis- autistic spectral disorder, mm-hmm. um, autism spectral, spectrum disorder, was found. This is why I have a hard time with some of this stuff when people release a study and then it becomes like the thing. Yes. Yes. Because then, you know, you look at something else and it's totally uh, contra. It's totally different. Yeah. So people choose confirmation bias to pick the articles that they like and they don't. I mean, this article was from 2021. The one we read discussed on the previous podcast was from 2020. They're only a year apart and they come up with completely opposite. Well, they're not completely opposite, but one says there is a risk. One says there isn't a risk. Um, so what do you recommend with stuff like that for people who are listening? Well, I, you know, I recommend people stay out of the hospital as much as possible. No, I just mean in general, like when you hear something like that, my instinct is to, if, if you really feel like it's something that is applicable to your practice or something that's important to you, that you look at who backed it and, you know, who was involved with it, how big of a study 
like how many people were involved. Like you have to get into it a little bit deeper, which is why I thought it could be cool to do an actual podcast where we look at a couple of different studies yeah, and break it down. I did. I did have that on our list is how, yeah. to, how to study a study. Yeah, because I think that in this culture where we get these little blurbs and, you know, everybody's attention span is so quick and everybody wants to be entertained um, that you take information. Oh, the science, there's data because someone said that, but you don't go a little bit deeper. And I think in, in these day and times, we have to go a little bit deeper to be able to make an educated decision. Absolutely. You cannot, yeah. you cannot take your data from headlines. Headlines are often used to just get you to click. Right. They're often false and they often don't even represent what's in the story. Yeah. And it feels like propaganda. Well, it is in a lot of ways, the way that things are kind of pushed. All media right now is propaganda, and there's no way to differentiate the propaganda. It is very much like Pravda. The difference between our media and Pravda, which was the Russian media during the communist times, was that everyone knew that Pravda was a propagandist organization. Right. Now, media out there now put themselves out there as being legitimate when they're all propaganda. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to know what to do. You cannot do science by press release. And the reporters don't know enough to ask a deeper question, or, or maybe they're not interested, or maybe they only have a 60-second a segment where they, can, they can't get into it. So that's why um, it's very difficult to know. And that's why you have to have reliable sources. I hope that I and Bliss are reliable sources for you guys. And a lot of you send us questions and comments and things like that. So it makes me think that you trust our judgment. Um, there are a lot of other great people out there, and we mention sometimes on the podcast other things that we listen to. Um, we should probably do just a, a segment one time on the things that we listen to. Yeah. Because you have a lot of people that you listen to that are very wise. Yeah. And you quote them often. Mm-hmm. And I have my my favorite people like Del Bigtree and and some of the other people that are related to him in that world, in the at least in the vaccine in the, that world. But there's so many other people that I get my news from that I trust because they've never led me astray. Whereas the mainstream media has been wrong on pretty much every major issue in the last decade or more. You know, I haven't really listened to the news in over 20 years. This is why you're so wise. You, you, you know. <laughs> I don't do it. It's just too much for my well, sensitive soul. Speaking of that, this is a little bit of a tangential thing to that because here I wrote. But we didn't even check in yet. Oh, well, I know you because, had so much business. No, but I got, I wanted to check in, but I wanted to get the corrections and additions done okay, first. Okay, go for it. And then so we're I, gonna, I, I have then, I have it all. I made notes. I have I have this feeling like people listen to the first five minutes of us checking in, and then maybe don't listen to the whole thing. You tell well, us. I if hope that's, that's true. not true. <laughs> um, they want to hear us chat. Not all people, just some. Yeah, well, you we, know, the, but we the, chat in them. We we chat throughout our podcast. The, the so soundbite if you people. if you only tune into the first ten minutes, you're missing all the later chatting. That's right. That's right. That's that's one of your favorite <laughs> lines, by the way. That's right. You say that's right. Uh, okay, one more thing because it's about it's about trust and it's about trust in articles because in the current journal of uh, obstetrics and gynecology, which is the Green Journal, which is the most prestigious OBGYN journal in the United States right now. There's a um, article that says that it's a commentary about maternal mortality in the United States. Now, everybody that you know and I know thinks that maternal mortality has pretty much stayed the same, if not risen slightly. Isn't that sort of what we tell people? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So their, their statement here is rigorous studies carried out by the National Center for Health Statistics show that previously reported increases in maternal mortality rates in the United States were an artifact of changes in surveillance. Say more. I'm just, all I'm saying is that I don't believe a word that they just said. Yeah, I was skeptical. That's why I was like, yeah, tell me more. I just don't. What, is survey, what did they mean by survey? Well, it's very complicated what oh. they're doing, but, I, but <laughs> I, wrote, I, I highlighted this part. You know, if I have to do this ahead of time, whether this would bore everybody to death, yeah. is I have to use my famed highlighter yeah. to highlight. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, so I wrote, hang on, let me put my glasses on. At least who knows what might be boring to death. That's a good thing. Although the National Center for Health Statistics studies based on recoding of death certificate information. Oh, yes. Okay. So they recoded <laughs> and decided, oh, let's not count that one. Yeah. Um, and then they say, after excluding information from the pregnancy checkbox, which I have no idea what the pregnancy checkbox check is, and it really didn't explain it here. Whether they're pregnant or not. I, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh, is that that simple? <laughs> <laughs> Common sense. 
Do you? <laughs> well, well, you know what? I get, I get, I get, I get stuck in the weeds. Here. Yeah, I got it. I got stuck yeah. in the weeds. Okay. Show that crude maternal mortality rates did not change significantly between 2002 and 2018. Age-adjusted analysis showed a temporal reduction in the maternal mortality rate of a 21% decline. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that? I don't know if I believe that. Although they still say that large racial disparities continue to exist, which of course, yes. at least they're acknowledging that. Yes. So let's start over. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Uh, so I want to start by telling people if any if you see our little video clip or something about this, you'll see a little gash on my forehead and maybe on my nose. That one's just about gone. But yeah. so I was hiking. Um, you look tough on a steep trail mm-hmm. by myself as usual, mm-hmm. and uh, it had it was a four point four miles, and it had a little over one thousand fifty vertical feet. So that's a pretty steep trail. Yeah. And it was very dry and very gravelly and very steep going downhill. And I was being very, very careful. And it didn't matter. Both my feet went out from under me. And I slid and rolled about maybe 10 feet. Yeah. And I banged my knee and my elbow and my head. Didn't break anything, thank goodness. Thank goodness. I was wearing my baseball cap, which I think protected my forehead. Yeah. A little bit. Did it frighten you a little? Yeah. 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 I imagine. Those moments when you're like, oh, is this going to be really bad? I laid there for a second and I decided... Okay, I feel like my head got hit. I'm waiting for the blood to start dripping down my nose or yeah. dripping down my eyeball or something. Nothing yeah. came dripping. So I took my shirt and I tapped my forehead. I noticed there was blood on it, but it was like not too bad. Like an abrasion type blood yeah. and not that. And then I looked at my knee and <laughs> my elbow. And then I have a big bruise on my hip. And uh, but I took a moment. I got back up. The first thing I did when I got back up is I said, Where's my hat? Because <laughs> I don't want to lose my hat. Did it fly? Well, it was up, it was back up the hill uh-huh. a little bit. So I had to cl- clamber back up to get my hat. Shoot. <laughs> and then I was really, really careful and really ginger. And I, you know, I have a bad knee, so I have to be really ginger when I'm walk- when I'm hiking anyway. And I'm very careful about that. And my son last year for my birthday bought me walking sticks. Like, you know, you've seen people on the hiking trail, and I just never wanted to use them. But I think it's time, guys. I think it's time to take out the walking sticks. What do you think? And what does that do? That just helps you. It's like start it's balance, like skiing. It's like uh-huh. you, you, if you're slipping, you, you can. Well, I mean, I think gives you a third leg or a fourth leg. I think you're doing some pretty adventurous hikes. I don't think you need them on general, like you know, just taking a walk, walking, but, walking down your street. Right. <laughs> but you're doing some, you know. Right. Yeah, you know what that made me think about um, when you were telling that story is I don't remember his name, but the guy who sawed his own arm off. Oh, the, oh, the, the, the 127 hour guy. That is another movie. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking because James, I'm, I think James Franco played. Mm-hmm, that, right? I'm going to be traveling a true story. I'm going to be traveling by myself and I'm seeing all these beautiful hikes similar to where he hiked. And I was like, I have to be careful because I'm going to be by myself. That's one of the things that he got from it was that he needed to tell. Yeah. But he was, he was, he was really deep in the wilderness. Most of the trails and hikes that you're going to go on. Yeah. There's gonna, especially in the summertime. Yeah. There's gonna be other people walking. Okay. You won't. You won't. But I had that thought, like. Yeah. No. I'm gonna saw my own arm off. Could I do it? I don't think I could. By the way, I don't think I could do it. But you don't know what. No, if it was dead already, if it's dead already, you might. Yeah. I mean, if it's already getting. Anyways, that that seems crazy. Um. So anyway, it reminded me of a scene from the Batman movie. Um. We're just going to do movie review today. <laughs> no, but it reminded me of a scene in the Batman movie where, where uh, Bruce Wayne is a little kid, falls down, and his father comes down and says to him, he says, why do we fall down? And the answer? So we can get back up. So we can learn to pick ourselves back up again. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So I picked myself back up, and I finished the hike. And I love that. It was great. I love I mean, that. And I really, then I, I'm still sore, and... Uh, yeah. But I, um, I felt like I accomplished something. I don't know what, but, but to, to finish that hike was a really a tough hike. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, we did a birth together this week. We did. I have two births to talk about. Let's talk about that one first because we were together. You yeah. Go, you go first. Well, um, your students were there and one of them, Alyssa, was having her books of primary. So I really wanted to just take a back seat. And um, really uh, not, um, you know, it's really hard. I'm sure you know, like when you're seeing things, you want to kind of jump in, especially when it has to do with like safety. Well, we each have our own way of doing things. And yeah. when it's go, when, it, when 
it doesn't happen that way or something isn't being done in the order that you and I would do it, you have to bite your tongue. It's easier for me because while you're taking a back seat, mm-hmm. I'm taking a couch. <laughs> you, were, you were downstairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I have you and, and uh, you know, a 30-year almost graduating student and a doula as well, as good as Joanna is, yeah. there's not much I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. She's a midwife too, you said, She's right? She's a midwife yeah, yeah. also, right? Um, so... I, I made a note as you were telling your other story stuck in the weeds because that was one of the feedback that I gave them is it's really hard. And I remember when I started as a midwife, it, especially if you've been a doula first, is you go in and you want to do the doula role and the midwifery role. And uh, for one thing, you wear yourself out, especially if it's a long birth, which this wasn't going to be, but she did already have a doula. And so I reminded them like, you need to come in and set up the container in case there's an emergency. That's your primary job. Mm -hmm. Once you've done that, if you want to like do all the lovely, you know, touchy feely, supportive encouragement, you can do that. But your responsibility in that room in that moment is to make sure that things are safe. Um, And, you know, if you don't, this is the feedback that I think maybe Alex had given me when I was a student. Um, you can't see the the big picture because you're like, you know, how you missed that pregnancy checkbox because you were in the weeds of it. You can't see the whole thing. So you have to kind of take a step back. So it was a beautiful delivery. Uh, Congratulations, Bruna. Yeah. And I would say that, that what's really for me about that delivery is that throughout her entire pregnancy, this woman was sort of always, I get, you know, whining is a terrible word because it, it, it conjures up the image of somebody who's not grateful or just mm-hmm. that's had nothing to do with it, but she's, everything was like a big sigh or it's like really hard for her or mm-hmm. whatever. And all through that. And she put together a really good team. Yeah. They did not need me. Uh, from the very first day I met them, she's, she was her second baby, mm-hmm. uh, first home birth, but second baby. And I told them that they don't need a physician at their birth, mm-hmm. but they wanted me there. Uh, she wanted me there for confidence and Danny, Danny did too, but, but, but they had us put together a really good team that was able to support her in whatever way she needed. And every time she started to go off on that little road to where I can't do this, or I'm exhausted, or this is so painful or whatever, you guys just brought her right back. Right yeah, back to where she, she did amazing. And I was, you know, I, I only met her one other time, but, uh, she had asked that I come, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, she hears you on the podcast. Yeah. Right? So there were several times because I was taking the back seat where she just looked over at me and I just locked eyes with her and just smiled, like made sure that I was just like, there wasn't any words that needed to be said was everything's great. You're doing great. You know, it was a really awesome. So the only other thing I want to say, it's kind of like a teaching moment for everybody is um, during the pushing phase head came out. Yep. She was on her hands and knees. I could see that she visibly pushed two or three more times. Mm-hmm. Baby didn't come. So um, we, I requested that she put one leg up in a runner's start. So you're, you're on one foot with the knee bent and then the other knee is on the floor. Like a lunge. Like a lunge, um, which we're taught in midwifery school in terms of like shoulder dystocia or something like that, that just changing the, the mom's position can oftentimes be the thing that needs to happen for the baby to come and it did right next push the baby. Came yeah. Out. And I would have probably even intervened a little bit earlier just for me, because that's just my medical training that still comes bubbling up to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not real comfortable. I think it was probably what about two minutes. It was two minutes, but the head was just sitting there. Yeah. And, uh, it was a big head too. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> pretty... eight, maybe only weighed eight, nine, eight yeah, pounds, yeah, eight yeah. Ounces, but it was a big head. 22 so. inches. 22 inches mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so that was great. So congratulations to them. Yes. And then I had one of, uh, a first-time event for me. I had a 22-year-old uh, person who lived in uh, the canyons near Pacific Palisades, California, sort of in a, in a commune-type situation. I met her a week before because she was complete breach. We had a consult. We talked about trying to turn the baby, giving her the options of turning the baby. Um, after we went through the whole informed consent process about the pros and cons of versions, the success rates, all that sort of thing. And then the, the options of home breach delivery, 
She met the criteria for breach delivery with the position, the flexed head, the estimated fetal weight, the everything, fetal well-being, all that stuff. Versus a hospital breach delivery versus a cesarean section scheduled versus cesarean section waiting for labor. And they and then we left the room and we let them talk about it. And they're very in touch. They're very feral, intuitive, artistic. Feral is a very interesting word people. to use. Well, I mean, when you hear about her birth, you'll yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Well, I talked to Hayes and she used the same word. So it's very Maybe that's why we've shared the word. Yeah, I don't yeah, know where yeah. it came from, yeah. but yes, it's exactly what they are. And uh, they decided they weren't going to do anything that this is baby wanted to come this way. They were going to come this way. They're going to hire me to feel. be on board. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. So on um, uh, last Tuesday, whatever day that is, by the time this podcast has come out, we, we did a prenatal visit. At, at their house? At, no, at Beth's office. Oh, uh-huh. And then she was having occasional contractions in the office, but they were far apart and she was just talking right through them. So we knew that something was brewing and it might end up that evening, things would pick up. Um, I went off to do some errands. I get a call from Hayes that says, uh, the baby's coming. Okay, <laughs> I'm 40 minutes away. This is less than, less, than less than four hours after she left the office. Wow. This primip has a baby unassisted breach breach mm -hmm. outside oh i didn't know that yeah part. they have an outdoor toilet mm -hmm. they have an indoor toilet too but they have an outdoor toilet she mm -hmm. was just sitting on the toilet and the button feet came out there the her doula got her off the toilet this was her doula's first birth by the way she really isn't a doula she was like one of the other people on the yeah but she's friend. very also very in touch with nature very in mm -hmm. touch with it mm -hmm. like um hayes was talking to him on the phone said get around all fours get around all fours the baby just came out yeah baby rotated properly came out if it hadn't then we would have had to talk them through it um but there was never a, a moment of hesitation on their part never a moment of doubt never a moment of thought of calling an ambulance never a moment of anything other than this is how the animals on our beautiful farm do it we're going to do it that way too beautiful and it was great and what's really good about that is because you know we always say this sort of thing about wisdom that, that, you know, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And that's how you, that's how you get wise yeah. as you get older. Yeah. But the wisdom of this 22 year old, uh, put, would put pretty much everybody that is a position of power in our country right now to shame. That's awesome. I would love to have, if she would never want to do it, but I, I she should be in charge of, <laughs> she should be a uh, surgeon general or she should, be, she should be in charge because she's really, really wise beyond her years. I hope that this next generation that's coming through, that that's what we're going to see. So a shout out, shout out to them. So we have, we had a, uh, a beautiful unassisted primate complete breach delivery so outside. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Not a sterile procedure. No. <laughs> As you know, the animals you know how I talk about it with the with the mammal when the baby falls in the dirt and, uh, yeah. and, and nobody rushes in to cut the cord and nobody ever separates the mother from the baby? Yes. Well, we've had one now. <laughs> Although the baby didn't fall into it, the doula held onto the baby. Oh. But still, she sat down outside on a mat. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was great. Love it. So I have been super busy fixing up my RV. Hope. Yeah. Yes. And this week, yes. I found out that she had water damage. So it's one of the things I'm not going to tackle on my own. So I've hired somebody to come and fix that for me, but we're making progress Yep. and hopefully in two weeks she'll be done and we're going to record a pot. Maybe we'll do a live. That might be fun to do a live that time. A live and record. Sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Then you guys could see. Well, I think you have a couple things that you want to read. I, I, I did give you a note today that uh, just came by the way, an hour before the podcast started, I received this on my email and then you have something else there too. Do you want me to read this one first? Well, yeah, you can read either one. Okay. Well, this was just uh, one of our listeners, Nicole Gendel, uh, sent me a gift. Nice. I thought that was really sweet. So I was going to read it. It says, hi, you don't know me, but I'm a big fan of Dr. Stu's podcast. You ooze warmth and compassion. It's contagious. Wishing you a beautiful new adventure. I, I love that this light includes yours and your daughter's name from Nicole. It, she got me this really awesome light. It's called the Skylight. And the company's bliss. So I think that's what she was mentioning. And it basically projects um, the like the stars onto the ceiling. So when I'm in the, the RV, I can have that's a so little. so sweet. Yeah. yeah. Will you show me? You have to show me after. I will. We'll right. do it on the live. Okay. 
Um, so this is from Amanda Tel Telforst, do you think? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, from Dallas, Texas. And she says, Dear Dr. Stu, thank you. I wanted to write and say thank you. I found your podcast last year, right before I got pregnant, and I have been listening to them weekly ever since. Thank you for being a doctor who believes in informed consent. Thank you for teaching me that I have birth, I have choices in birth. Thank you for giving women the option of birthing on their terms when other doctors are too scared to do what you do. We need more Dr. Stews in this world. I agree. Yeah. Just where are we going to find them? <laughs> You're one of a kind. Um, when I got pregnant, I chose to have a midwife and a home birth. I learned everything I could about birth, took a hip hypnobirthing class and listened to so many podcasts, read all the books and even attended several births in a, at a local birthing center. I was training to be one of her birth assistants. She's an RN. Um, I also went to a chiropractor weekly, got prenatal massages and was working with a pelvic floor therapist. I thought I was doing all the things right. I've heard this one before. Um, unfortunately, I went into preterm labor at 34 weeks. I had a mild case of COVID at 30 weeks. Have you heard of women going into preterm labor because of COVID? Yes. Yes, he says. Um, the hospital. <laughs> I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> the hospital was able to stop for a couple, um, to stop it for a couple of days, but my water broke at 34 weeks and three days. I was devastated. Um, but when I got to the hospital, I felt very blessed to know I had the right and the power to advocate for myself. My contractions started getting fairly strong soon after my water broke and I labored in the hospital bathroom. Yes. Um, I was hiding in the bathroom so that I did not have to lay on the bed through the contractions. We've, we've, a, given, we've given people that advice. I'm a big fan. This yeah. is so great. I can't come out yet. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not ready to come back to bed. Right. <laughs> I'm using the restroom. Um, until the nurses suggested that she could write down that I denied continuous monitoring and she would come in every 30 minutes to listen to the baby. So there you go. There's another recommendation. Um, but that wouldn't have happened. If she hadn't been hiding in the bathroom. And listen, Why didn't the nurse podcast. suggest that from the very beginning? Yeah, exactly. Then she wouldn't have had to go hiding. In the bathroom. <laughs> okay. I knew in my heart that the safest way to get my baby out was not laying in bed with an epidural. At one point, I got into the bed and tried to rest in child's pose. Um, child's pose, for those of you who don't know, is basically on your um, on your knees with your chest on the bed or on, you know, on your arms. So not hands and knees, but kind of laying more towards the bed. Um, the next thing I knew I was on my hands and knees telling my husband to get, um, telling my husband something feels weird and to get the doctor. I was experiencing the fetal ejection reflex and she came in just in time. Um, Oh, the doctor, I guess she came in just in time to catch the baby. The NICU team and the attending didn't make it in the room when she was born. That's how she wanted it, I guess. I had my sweet Josephine Navy three hours after my water broke, weighing four pounds, 13 ounces. She needed no respiratory support uh, when she was born or any other time during her NICU stay. She was otherwise healthy <laughs> besides being tiny. Before you go on any further, mm -hmm. well, maybe she even asked this later in the, in, the, in the last paragraph, but if she needed no respiratory support during her birth or NICU stay, then why was she in the NICU? Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. What are they doing for her that the mother couldn't do? Providing temperature control? Uh, mother can do that. Yeah. Providing food? Mother can do that. Providing alertness and awareness and monitoring? The mother can do that. We'll definitely do but that. <laughs> hospital, but I get in the mentality of the hospital is she's below their protocol. She was born at 34 and a half. And so the 34 and a half by automatically has to go to the NICU. It's like not. It's an algorithm. It's not individualized. This baby did not need to be in the NICU. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is another one. It's tough to advocate for yourself on this one because it's scary and you feel like you don't necessarily know, but it's good to ask as Stu's kind of pointing out, if there's nothing that they are providing in the NICU that is different than what you would be able to do in your own room, just because of a standard of care, that's another time if you felt like you had the courage because it can be difficult to sign an AMA sometimes to say against medical advice. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, if but, the, if but it, you can say, 
if there's nothing in the NICU that they're doing, I would prefer to be rooming in with my baby. And if they're worried about apnea or they're worried about that sort of thing. So, all right. So put a little sticker on the baby and on the mother's chest and have the sticker go to a little, some little machine. Why does the baby need to be in an incubator with the sticker on? The baby doesn't have a tube in its mouth. The baby doesn't have tubes in its nose. The baby doesn't have IV. The baby doesn't have anything. Yeah. So why is the baby the NICU? Again, I'm projecting that that, that that's exactly what the scenario was. Maybe there was something else going on. Uh, we don't know. But based on what she's describing, there's there was no reason for that to happen. Yeah, and there's a wisdom to being kept together in other countries that don't have big NICU availability. They they kangaroo do kangaroo yes. care, and they put them together, and uh, babies do well. I think she actually mentioned it. Go on. Yeah. Um, I tell you all of this because I just want you to know um, what you share matters and it impacted my life. I still feel like I had a traumatic birth, but looking back, I know I did the best I could for myself and my baby because I knew I could advocate for myself. You sure did. I'm, I'm really impressed. Um, I still wish when they saw that she was breathing and stable and that I was able to hold her for the golden skin hour, skin on skin. Why couldn't I? That doesn't make any sense to me why she had to be rushed to the NICU when she was stable. Nor us. We agree with you. Even though I did not get the birth I wanted, I still believe in the beauty and power of birth. Thank you for listening and thank you for all you do. You know, this is a real dilemma for me. It's becoming more of a dilemma because when I hear stories like this is, I know you guys are bound by the 37-week rule, so you're sort of- In California. You're sort of stuck. But if somebody comes to me in my practice and suddenly they're in labor at 35 weeks in one day, or even 34 weeks in six days, if I send them to the hospital, I know that they're, well, if their twins are breaches, they're screwed, all right? They're going to get a section probably. Mm-hmm. But even if they're a singleton head down, if I send them to the hospital, they're going to go exactly, it's going to go exactly like this. The mm-hmm. baby's going to be taken to the nursery. Mm-hmm. If they, and the birth will be in a setting where they don't want it to be, they may have to be on their back. They might have their legs up in stirrups. So who knows? The whole hazmat thing. If I deliver them at home, right? Which legally I can do. Mm-hmm. And then the baby does fine. That's fine. If the baby then needs to be transported, the baby can then be transported, but the mother could still get the birth that she wanted because the likelihood that this baby's going to come out, that's going to need immediate intubation and respiratory attention at 34 weeks and six days or something is very, very small. Yeah. Very small. Usually what you'll see is they'll continue to be breathing a little rapidly or they'll start to flare or, or retract. That or you sort put of the full socks on and it's not great. Yeah, whatever. And then you could then you can transfer them. Mm-hmm. You can either transfer them by car or if they're close by, you could if you have to call an ambulance, you can call an ambulance. But at least they got the birth, the water birth or the home birth or that whole that whole thing that they that they wanted. The baby had the initial skin to skin and delayed cord clamping and all the other things that they want. Um, it's a it's really a dilemma for me because the scrutiny that we're under if I were to do that and then transfer, it would, would certainly bring an investigation at some point, especially if I started to do it repetitively. So it's really difficult because I've had some twins who broke their bag in like 35 weeks and or 34 weeks and six days, like the ones I'm talking about. And I've sent them to the hospital. And I, sometimes I feel really funny about that. Yeah. Cause it, cause it, you know that it doesn't need to happen. It's happening because you're right. You're protecting your practice to be able to um, take care of other people. Right. And her her name was what again? Amanda. Oh, thank you, Amanda. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's get to the topic today because it's a very short topic, actually. Okay, good. Uh, Why did you want to bring this up? Um, There's a local midwife. What is the topic, first of all? ABO incompatibility. Thank you. We're so efficient here on on, You mentioned it earlier. Right. Yeah. Um, So there's a local midwife. I don't know firsthand. It was told to me through another midwife that I respect very much. Um, that she had been getting um, some scrutiny or challenges because she didn't catch that there was an ABO incompatibility. And just so as a midwife, I'm like, I think the women that we, I talk with, the midwives that I talk with, we were like, oh, you know, like we have to make sure that we don't have that kind of issue. So I just thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss. Okay. And you were like, I don't understand. What did she miss? So, yeah, yeah. There, there's there's nothing to be missed any natally. The only thing that can be missed is a baby getting more jaundice than you'd expect mm-hmm. postpartum. Mm-hmm. And you could also be a little more suspicious if you have a mother who's O positive mm-hmm. or O negative for that matter, and the father of the baby is A or B mm-hmm. or AB. Um, then 
you can be a little more suspicious and you can maybe a little bit uh, proactive regarding sunlight or hydration or donor milk or bilirubin lights, like we those portable lights we have, and just put them on it prophylactically. You could do that. There's no way to know. It's not predictable. Let's go through a couple little facts because there really isn't a lot of data on ABL incompatibility because it's usually not a big deal. There are two or three cases in the literature only that I could find of a baby developing erythroblastosis fetalis from ABO incompatibility. Almost never happens. Which is very serious. Right. And, there, I, and I think the three reasons they gave for that, let's see if I have them here. I know I, I saw that. The three reasons, oh, now I need my glasses again. <laughs> and, and I do, you might have already be planning this, but I do want you to kind of go very basic for people who are not medical providers. All right, well, let's, go, let's, go, let's go with very basic yeah, first. Yeah, do the very okay. basic stuff. Uh, ABO incompatibility occurs only with, or mostly with babies whose mothers have the O blood type. Okay. And where the baby's either A or B blood type. Which we don't know before they're born. There's no, almost no way to know that because even if the father is A or B, the only way we would know if it's going to be, baby's going to be A or B is if the father has AB blood type. Mm-hmm. If the father's A or B, the father could be homozygous, which means it has two A's, or it could be heterozygous, which means it's got an A from one parent and an O from another parent, which means that half its offspring will be O and half his offspring will be A. We don't know that ahead of time because we don't, you, there's no way to really determine that sort of thing. Um, and because it's not that lethal or that even more morbid, there's no reason to do a expensive investigation on the father to determine that sort of thing. Right. It does make sense when you have an O mother. mother to check the father's blood type, just as it makes really good sense if you have an RH negative yes. mother before you're giving her Rogam yes, is to please that. check the RH status of the father because yes. our father's RH negative. And according to the, 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 my reading, and you're certain that he's the father. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing air quotes, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> then uh, there's no reason to give Rogam for that. But okay. So um, premature babies are much more likely to experience a significant problem mm-hmm. from ABO. Conversely, healthy full-term babies are generally only mildly affected. So that's our population. Yes. Um, ABO incompatibility can occur in firstborn babies. So it's not the same as you'd see with RH sensitization, where it might be mild in the first baby, but serious in the second baby. It doesn't work that way. Right. Okay. It does not become more severe in future pregnancies. Uh, During pregnancy, the mother and baby's blood normally do not mix. Right. Although we know that baby's DNA crosses into the mother because we've heard about this and it's like you have some of your children's cells inside of you growing in whatever. In your heart, they say. Yeah, yes. somewhere in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, baby's blood generally doesn't mix and it would take a certain amount of blood mixing before your body's going to develop immune response to it. But on some rare, rare occasions it can and that's where, you know, the, the mother can then get sensitized to the baby's A or B blood type because the mother is O and therefore carries in its bloodstream will make antigens, excuse me, antibodies to the antigens of A blood type cells or B red cells. Yeah. So similar to an RH factor situation, um, it would be a miscarriage, a car accident, a procedure like an Correct. Those sorts of things. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trauma usually Mm -hmm. will do it. The destruction of the red cells causes an increase in the production of bilirubin, which is a waste product. It's really that simple. There are no preventative measures for ABO incompatibility. So it's not like you can give a shot or do something mm-hmm. to prevent it from happening. Mm-hmm. So after birth, there are two options for testing for ABO incompatibility. All right. One is have the cord blood of all babies whose mothers have an O blood type and the father is either A or B tested for the baby's blood type. So maybe that's what she didn't do. Well, but that's only one. That's Let one. me finish. Okay. The theory behind <laughs> the theory behind this approach is that if the baby is either type A or B and they test positive for direct anaglobin test, that's the direct Coombs test, mm-hmm. which means it's baby's red cells already have maternal antibodies attached to them. Mm-hmm. And that's something the lab can run. The baby can then be followed more closely for jaundice. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The alternate way of doing it is to screen any baby who becomes jaundiced and yeah. just watch for jaundice, particularly if it's happened within the first 24, 24 hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Which is what we do anyways. I think um, in a hospital setting, you know, you go home within 24, 48 hours. And so the parents don't have a lot of um, uh, 
accessibility to their doctors necessarily. Um, and it's different in midwifery care because we're following them for six weeks. Yeah, you know, I, I, searched, I searched the ACOG database for uh, ABL incompatibility. They, they don't really have a statement on it. They have a practice bulletin number 192 on from March of 2018, which is on management of allo immunization during pregnancy, which is about RH disease mostly, but some of the other rare antibodies like Lewis and Cal and those things. But there's no mention in that whole thing about ABO incompatibility. Mm -hmm. And then I took I took one article about um, a rare case report on a baby that got really, really sick from ABO incompatibility. And I just highlighted some important information. One is paradoxically mild presentation usually noted with AB incom ABO incompatibility may be explained as follows. So you're saying if there's antibodies crossing the placenta attacking the baby's A cells or B cells from the mother, why is it mild? As opposed to if it's RH, where it could be severe. Mm -hmm. So they say there, there is a reduced number of A and B antigenic sites on the fetal red cell, and the ABO antigen structures may that that may bind antibody less avidly. So it's it's not as it's not as uh, immunogenic as the RH site, mm -hmm. and there's less places to bind. Another one which I found, well, the, the third, the second one is very important. Most maternal anti A and anti B antibodies are IgM. And IgMs do not cross the placenta. Okay. And thirdly, the small amounts of IgA and uh, IgG anti-A and anti-B antibodies that do cross the placenta have numerous other antigenic sites besides the red blood cells from which they bind. They'll bind to the the muscle tissue. They'll bind to other things because that A and B antigen is on all the baby's parts of its body. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily just attack the red cells. So that's why it's a lot milder. Makes perfect sense. Although neonatal hyperbilirubinemia and possible cernicterus, which is where you get bilirubin uh, deposited in the brain, which can be very, very serious, may develop with ABO incompatibility. Hydrops is not noted to occur and anemia at birth is very mild. So when somebody's being disciplined or, or gone over because they, they missed ABO incompatibility, that's foolish, all right? We all give people instructions about what the baby should look like, the baby's color. We all come, in our model, we come back a day or two postpartum. Yeah. We take a look at the baby. It would seem to me that in the mm -hmm. hospital model where they send them home on the first postpartum day, mm -hmm. say, see you in six weeks. Yeah. But, you know, go see your pediatrician within the next week or two, mm -hmm. that that's more likely to be missed. But does anybody get disciplined for that? I don't know the answer to that well, question, you can, you can, but that's you're a, leading. That's a hypothetical <laughs> answer. Yeah. I mean, does that really happen? Uh, no, babies will, you know, they'll go to the pediatrician. People will go, oh my God, the baby's bilirubin is 22. We need to admit the baby to the hospital. Yeah. But why, why aren't we disciplining the parents? Because they missed it when it was on its way up. We don't, we don't ever pick on parents. We only pick on, on midwife professionals. Professionals, and, yes. And then, uh, then isolated doctors like me. So... I think that in talking to, to midwives, you know, newer midwives, um, a lot of times we get really nervous about jaundice. So what I always talk to my clients about is there's pathologic jaundice and there's physiologic jaundice. And so the, it is normal for the body, the baby's body to break down the extra red blood cells. And it's similar. Yes. It's similar to when you get a bruise. So you have extra red blood cells in that area. And then as it starts to kind of break down, you get that yellow color right before the bruise goes away. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in jaundice is, is very similar. When we are concerned about it is when the baby develops it within the first 24 hours, mm -hmm. or we have a baby that is not like you have to look at the whole baby. So the baby's not doing well. The baby is lethargic, which is hard to tell in the first 24 hours because they sleep a lot, but they're not nursing. They're not eliminating well, and they're continuing to get more yellow because what happens is we break down the extra red blood cells and then we eliminate it through the meconium. So the breastfeeding, getting in milk helps pass the meconium. And when they're passing the meconium, they're getting rid of the extra. So we also tell them, as you've mentioned, to do sun baths because that is what is happening with the bilirubin life. It's basically simulating something. Yeah, the bilirubin can be broken down through certain, uh, a certain non, the non-tanning, non, you know, the, the non-high-risk UV light. Mm -hmm. That That's the theory behind bilirubin lights. You can, a baby can sit on bilirubin lights all day long, 
and it's not going to get sunburned. Right. 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 But it does penetrate the skin and breaks down the bilirubin through the through the UV light. So right. that's why like phototherapy works. Right. So it would you would want to actually have like keep the lights, uh, the blinds or curtains or whatever open during the day. Right. It doesn't have to be direct sunlight. In early postpartum, I usually say for somebody who I was more uh, paying attention, like you said, you might want to be a little bit more assertive if you knew you had this incompatibility is that I would have it be through the window where you can actually see a stream of sunlight. Right. But yeah. you can't keep the baby there for hours at a time. No, no, no. Like 10, sunburn, min- yes. right. 10 minutes at a time, uh, with no clothes on. So not for long periods of time, but right. like during a nap. Yeah. Right. I, I usually say 20 minutes, 20 minutes, twice a day, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm really concerned about it and they're not the milk isn't in yet or whatever else we would try possibly bring getting in some donor milk to uh, hydrate the baby better. Yeah, yeah. We want to keep track of the peas and poops. Obviously that's why we asked the question. I mean, we don't just ask because for no reason mm-hmm. you know, we ask the question because it has a reason to ask. And then the way to way to tell if a baby's John is generally speaking just by the naked eye is to take, if you, if you don't eat a lot of carrots, right? If people eat a lot of carrots, the palm on their hands are going to be slightly orange. Mm-hmm. But for most of us that don't eat a lot of carrots, mm-hmm. So you're, you're a little bit older than me, uh-huh. but uh, <laughs> you, you take the palm of your hand, you compare it to the baby's chest. Yes. And that's the way to look at it. The baby, and you'll see it, and it has to be in some decent light Yes. to be able to see. You can't have it in a dark room. You'll never be able to tell. Uh-huh. In decent light, you look. And then also you look at the at the uh, sclera of the baby to yeah. see, that, you know, normally it's the sclera are going to be white or maybe slightly gray, but... Um, but if, if they're jaundiced and it's severe, they're, start, they're going to start to turn yellow. Yes. And that's a potential problem. And then you definitely need to get in touch with your pediatrician uh, because there are certain, uh, at that point, you might need a blood test to determine what the bilirubin level is. And if it's really too high, then going in or getting, you know, if we have portable billy lights, but most people in the world don't have access to portable billy lights, um, going in, the baby will get an IV to hydrate it and will get put under lights and, and it turns around really pretty quickly. They might be in the hospital for 24, 36 hours. Yeah. So midwives, you can, I learned this from Augustine when I was doing my training, Augustine Colebrook. Um, you can actually test the, the Billy levels yourself. So you would do a heel poke test. You could do it at the same time that you were doing your newborn screen mm-hmm. test if you needed to, or you could do an additional, you know, poke if you needed to, like you would for our blood sugars. And then um, there's a microtainer. So yep. it's a little tiny. A yellow, uh, yellow capped microtainer. Yeah, it's a little tiny um, tube. tube. Thank you, Stu. That has like a little scooping device on the edge. And you scoop the blood in. It's tiny. And you send it off. And then they can give you the belly levels. I guess you would want to do that stat. Definitely. Stat. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you're going to the trouble of doing a bilirubin, you don't want to set it off and yeah. have it sit in, so box, you sit, do in that. Your, sit in your box overnight or something. Yeah, like so you got to do that stat. Um, and that might save them the, cha- you know, getting into the system if they don't need to be. Um, but, you know, if you're ever concerned. Or the pediatrician's office could also. They could don't also, do it. Oh, they don't. Most of them don't do it. They don't. No, they oh, send them to that. the hospital. And so I told my pediatricians that I work with, I'm like, I can test my own clients. Please don't send them to the hospital. I'll test for them. And and did you ever see. say, well, and why don't you? No, <laughs> I don't. You should. And, but they're like, oh, you do that? You know, because they think I just, you know, sit around with incense. And- so that's that topic. And if anybody has questions about it, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It, it really is an eyeball test, uh, generally looking at the babies and, and, and paying attention to them and giving the parents good information and making sure that they check on them. And if, they're, if they have a question, they can take the baby into some good light, take a picture of the baby, send it to you. Yeah, but also I just wanted to like emphasize looking at the whole baby. If a baby is nursing well, and if the baby's eliminating well, that normal physiologic jaundice is going to pass. Pathologic jaundice, babies are not, they're not nursing well, they're lethargic. So that would be a bad combination. That is your midwife wisdom segment. Okay, good. Right. Do we have, do we have time <laughs> Although, for one more yeah. thing? I don't know. Okay, well, let's let's try to do this because this is sort of, again, I, I would probably put this into the dumb doctor dogma. Okay, good. Segment. Great. It's, uh, it's from a throwaway journal called OBGYN Management, and this was April's edition. And there was an article in there called, and, and, uh, I wrote a note to myself, ask Bliss how many of these things comport with her experience. Okay. So the title of the article is Managing the Second Stage of Labor, an Evidence-Based Approach. What's wrong with the title? Managing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there already, just the whole premise. Now, when, you know, when, once you understand how the medical model thinks, 
you can never unsee it. Right. You see it in everything that they do. Good. That's what we're hoping to do is help you not, un, not because, be able to unsee because, it. Because just the title, mm-hmm. Managing the Second Stage of Labor, right? Which is pushing. As we talked about, and you were so wise in, in last week's, well, the podcast that came out this week, there's a meme that says, why would we have to manage something that nature designed? And, you know, I don't remember how your quote went, but it was a really good quote. It got, it got you know, it must have been a good quote because Soulfire made it, made it, made <laughs> it into producers. a meme. Right, yes. right. All right. So this is, uh, I just, I used my highlighter again so that you don't have to read this stuff. Um, a prolonged second stage was defined as three hours of pushing in nulliparous women and two hours in multiparous women with one additional hour for those receiving epidural anesthesia. Okay. What's the longest pushing phase you've had? Oh, I don't know. I've had a six hour. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, six I've, hours. I've, I've been called to come put vacuums on people that have been pushing for 10 hours. Wow. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I always, I, I would prefer that they would have called me sooner, but I mean, yeah, it's probably one of those where they take breaks and they totally take yeah. breaks. But the idea again, remember what I said about even numbers? What's my thing about even numbers? Oh, that it's made up. Yeah. Yeah. Nature doesn't work right. that way. They, they just, they made it up. Yeah. So, in, and then it, of course they made it up because they're just talking about the history. And they said in 1955, Dr. Manuel Friedman published a prospective observational study of 622 consecutive primogravative parturients at term, of which 500 were included in the analysis that led to the graphico-statistical labor curve, well-known as Friedman's curve. Yes. So the thing that affected women for the last 70 years, 65 years, was based on 500 primates. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And somebody who wanted to manage (laughs) <laughs> manage labor manage labor all right uh maternal age correlates directly with the length of the second stage did you know that i know okay and i so this is what i said i don't how many that. things comport with your experience right i don't believe that right. okay. okay that is the length of the second stage increases with increasing age yeah don't don't necessarily yeah, say. yeah it's like mm-hmm. i i mean maybe there's data uh they have wait let's say they have reference 17 let's see what reference 17 is oh i even highlighted reference 17 mm-hmm. Contemporary labor patterns and maternal age from 2013. God, why are they studying this stuff? <laughs> they need how, something how, to do. Yeah, how does this, how does this, other than influencing physicians to intervene, maybe when they shouldn't, how does this benefit mankind? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a broad question. Yeah, though, it is. Oh my God. It's rhetorical. Don't even answer that. <laughs> There were no significant differences in the length of the second stage in, of labor, according to the weight categories, though. Babies? No, moms. Mom's weight. Yeah. There wasn't any Thin, difference. high BMI, low BMI, no difference. No difference. Great. Because, yeah. you know, some people thought that higher BMI might be harder to push, but that's not the case. Right. There's a lot of discrimination against women with higher BMI. Yes, there is. Yes. But the idea of, of, of taking those people to C-section is even more foolish because their Absolutely. morbidity is much higher at C-section. That's, yep. a, that's a truism. Yeah, great to know. Persistent fetal occiput posterior or transverse position may impact the duration of the second stage. Just let me ask this quick, quick question. What is the number one cause in, in, in the birthing world right now of persistent occiput posterior in, in your opinion? What's, what's oh, um, uh, not enough movement. Oh, yeah, and in mind, it's epidural. Activity. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Same, yeah. which... Sort of is the same thing because once you get an epidural, you're not moving. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. A retrospective cohort study in women who underwent a trial of manual rotation, which is where the doctor or midwife puts their fingers in and tries to rotate the head from internally. Uh huh. Internally compared with expected management during the second stage of labor with the fetus in the occiput or posterior occiput transverse position, found that women with manual rotation were less likely to have a cesarean delivery. They were less likely to have severe perineal laceration. They were less likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage or chorioamnionitis, interestingly enough. However, an increased risk of cervical laceration was associated with manual rotation, mm. right? But again, I think we're talking small numbers times, you know, you know a little bit higher than small numbers because I, I think cervical lacerations are really pretty rare. Yeah. I don't, I don't I'm, I've not seen one in my entire home birth world. No. No. I mean, may have had one years ago with forceps or something, but no. Yeah. Um, so what I would say about that is that that's a good skill to know is how to do an internal manual rotation of the baby. If you're having, you know, an excessive prolonged 
second stage, right. having that skill available to you, especially for midwives who are don't have access to a doctor stew coming to do a vacuum or a hospital that's supportive or any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's a question for you. What percentage of babies in the second stage have fetal heart rate abnormalities? Uh, Make a guess. Just in a, in a normal birth? Yeah. In, in the study. In the study. Oh, in the study. Yeah. 10. Fetal heart rate abnormalities occurred in 91% of second stage labor patterns. <laughs> With category two being the most common, the fetal status should remain reassuring to allow for continuation of the second stage. So my point being here, because they want to manage everything, but by continuing to monitor these people through the second stage, you're going to pick up things that are going to start to make the husband, the nurse, eventually the mother and the physician are all going to start to hear these things. They're going to start to get nervous and that's going to make it dysfunctional. We are, we are pushing the same amount I mean, we're, when we push it home without continuous monitoring, how often do we say, you know, this baby isn't tolerating it. You've got to, we've got to intervene. Yeah. I was going to say, almost. You think it's even that high? Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure it's much higher in the hospital. Yeah. Because we're talking about uh, directed pushing. We're talking about women on epidurals. We're talking about all kinds of things that are not, you know, Nine, if you have something that's 91, happens 91% of the time with something that's a normal physiologic process, then that's normal. 91% is now the average is that that is a normal thing. So again, I go back to like, how could nature be so wrong? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of epidural analgesia, has, they say it has no impact on the risk of cesarean delivery. Really? <laughs> However, women with epidural analgesia experience more hypotension, motor blockade, fever, and urinary retention. Ah, yeah, totally. One management practice has been to discontinue epidural analgesia to allow resumption of sensory and motor nerve function. Not a bad idea. Another Cochrane systematic review found no difference in mode of delivery or neonatal outcomes. Rather than discontinuing epidural analgesia, which results in a profound increase in inadequate pain relief. Yes. <laughs> I don't like the way that's even worded. Yeah, why? Tell me. A profound increase in inadequate pain relief. How do all our clients do it? No, they're just saying, if you're already on an epidural and you're telling this woman that she's got to turn the epidural off to get her baby out, she's going she's gonna to experience the discomfort. But you're right. It's quite possible to do it. But I tell people all the time, once you're on an epidural to go backwards, it's a thing. Yeah. It's yeah a, okay. It's a all thing. right. All right. Maybe that's fair. It's a thing. One may consider titrating the dose with joint patient decision-making, which I like Yeah. to allow for greater motor capability while maintaining adequate analgesia. That makes more sense. More sense. Mm -hmm. Women who consider delayed pushing should be informed that delayed pushing has not been shown to increase the likelihood of vaginal birth and that it is associated with increased risks of infection, hemorrhage, and neonatal acidemia. You mean laboring down? So they're talking about coach pushing versus delayed pushing. Uh -huh. And they're saying that people that wait have worse outcomes. Yeah. Don't agree. Good. <laughs> Don't Spont agree. Spontaneous, says bliss. spontaneous pushing versus directed pushing. Uh, demonstrate no clear difference in duration of the second stage, perineal laceration, episiotomy, time spent pushing, or number of women with spontaneous vaginal birth. Okay. Hmm. 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 We're skeptical. With regard to maternal positioning during the second stage, a Cochrane system systemic review found benefits for upright posture, okay, including a very small reduction in the duration of the second stage, reduction in episiotomy rates, and reduction in assisted deliveries. There was an increased risk of blood loss greater than 500 cc's and possibly increased risk in second degree tears with the upright position. Compared with women allocated to lying down, women in the upright position during the second stage with epidural analgesia had significantly fewer spontaneous vaginal bursts. So they're saying upright position with an epidural is worse. Mm -hmm. I don't know how people are upright if their legs are numb anyway. There was no difference in operative vaginal delivery, obstetrical anal sphincter injury, infant APGAR scores less than four at five minutes, and maternal fecal incontinence at one year between, I guess, people who were upright versus people who were not. So that's all, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but I just picked out the, these points because I thought that it would be really interesting to see how the OBGYN world thinks about the second stage of labor. Yes, 
it was very interesting. And the 91% is my favorite. So thanks for sharing. I guess they consider a variable D cell to be a fetal heart rate abnormality. Right. But and how many babies have that in the second stage? Almost all. 91%. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're just about out of time. Yeah. I wanted to read something. It was just after Memorial Day. I went to visit, I, you know, I have no family here. So I went on Memorial Day. I went to the, um, the day after Memorial Day, I went to the cemetery to visit my friend Dave Klein's grave because his family has all moved away. Mm, and very sweet. I have this file of old stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was wanted to get to one thing, which I'll try to do some other time, of an article that I had published in that same throwaway journal, OBGYN Management, that I just quoted that other from. But this one was from uh, 1991. So I want to read that in another future podcast. But Dave Klein sent this to me on September 11th of 2003. So I guess it was about two years after Mm 9-11. It's about the, the fall of the Athenian Republic. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. Sound familiar? Yes, very. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this was written in, 19, in 2000. Well, this I don't know when this was written. Um, it's actually adapted from something that was written in 1787. And Dave Klein sent it to me mm-hmm. 18 years ago. Wow. Never would have foreseen what was going on. I had talked with him at the cemetery and told him that uh, he wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't be happy. Mm. I mean, he'd be happy seeing his kids grow up and stuff, but he wouldn't be happy with what's going on because he was a freedom loving kind of guy. Mm. So anything else you want to add? No, just that that was the, you said 18 years and 2003 is when Grant was born. He's about to have his 18th birthday, my baby. So I'm kind of, you the, know. Well, the world has changed dramatically and yeah. And oh, goodness 18. gracious. In his lifetime, the world has changed greatly. So, yeah. Well, we thank you for listening to us, guys. We, uh, we, um, we love doing our podcast. I, I love when I get in my car to drive over here on uh, whatever morning we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always in a good mood. And okay. I'm in a better mood when I leave. Oh, good. Even when sometimes we go through stuff that uh, is hard. hard. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll just get excited when when we get on a call because you're not going to always be able to drive over. Sorry. No, we're going to be having to do Zoom meetings. But we'll still get to see each other because I committed to the podcast while I'm Yes, you did. (laughs) Okay, you guys. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 